0: concerning our um, appreciation for everybody's presence tonight, especially our visitors, and especially Mary Kay and Ed. We're glad that they're here with us tonight and appreciate everybody's presence. There was a baptism this afternoon, and Samantha Rainwater obeyed the gospel. She's not here tonight, but Lord willing, she'll be here next Sunday, and we'll get to greet her and meet her. Before I begin, though, I just want to say something about how that conversion came about and took place and hope it encourages every one of us to keep doing what we can in evangelism. Amira Wheat was studying with her friend, who is Samantha's daughter, Paisley, and she says she wants to obey the gospel and be baptized. And we started studying with her and we're following up with that on Tuesday. But in the midst of those studies, Her mother, Samantha, who was baptized tonight, said, you know what? I don't think I'm right according to what the New Testament says. I'd like to become a Christian. And so she's obeyed the gospel, and it'll all be in the end if she hears well done because Amira was bold and courageous and didn't just invite a friend but was willing to sit down and study the gospel with her. And so let us all be encouraged to continue to sow the seed, do, do what we can, and never underestimate our great young people here at Lehman because they can do and are doing great things for the kingdom's sake. Our world is built right now based on reviews and evaluation. If you order something from Uber Eats, by the time Bradley drops the Taco Bell off at your house and is back out in his car, something's going to ding and say, how was the service? If you listen to a podcast, they will invite you and say, hey, rate and review and like this podcast because it helps other people to find it. People want to review things. In fact, you probably make decisions in your life based on the reviews that you read from other people that you don't even know. Without much context, based on their review of this product or this service, you make up your mind of whether or not you want to engage in a particular endeavor. And I just want you to think about marriage tonight from that vantage point. I don't know how long you've been married, if you are married, but just think about it. If you were to give your review on marriage based on your experience, what would other people think about marriage? And would more people be encouraged to get involved in God's sacred institution of marriage before God? created the church and before God instituted government the first institution that God brought about is the marital one. You read in Genesis chapter 1 and over and over again 7 times God says it is good. It is good and finally it is very good. But for the first time in the Bible and this is before sin by the way in Genesis 2:18 God says something is not good. It's not good for a man to be alone. I'll make him a help meet, a helper for him, a suitable companion which says not that everybody in the world will get married, but it does say that God intends for the marital relationship to serve as a sort of cure for human loneliness. And it's a blessing that we enjoy. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus, you remember, and they want to talk to Jesus about divorce. Jesus wants to talk about marriage, and he takes them back to Genesis chapter 2, and he starts talking to them about what God set up in the beginning. Matthew 19, 4 through 6, one man, one woman for life until death separates it, the only exception being in cases of marital unfaithfulness. And we've taught those lessons and preached those lessons, and maybe you've heard those. But what I'm arguing for tonight is that maybe we stop there as we talk to people about marriage from the biblical vantage point, And we say things like, listen, God wants you to stay married and stay married for life. And we want them to stay away from divorce as much as is humanly possible. And maybe we just stop there and we settle for mediocrity in our marriages. And we think to ourselves, hey, so long as we don't separate, so long as we don't divorce, so long as we make it across the finish line, God doesn't care. God just wants us to finish. But what if God wants something more from us? What if mediocrity is unacceptable to God in every area of the Christian life, including marriage? God says things in the Bible about both spouses and their failure to follow through on their end of the deal and the heavy consequences that follow. And first Peter three and verse seven, he says, husbands, dwell with your wives in accordance with knowledge, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers won't be hindered. That is, if a man fails to be the kind of husband that he should, he's not on speaking terms with God. God doesn't want to hear his prayers. But then on the other side of this, the wife is told in Titus two, two through five. Love your husbands, love your children so that the word of God won't be blasphemed or spoken against. If the wife fails to do her part in submission and loving her husband, the word of God will be blasphemed. And so tonight what I want to talk about is marriage from the biblical standpoint of how we can have an awesome marriage and not perfect, not flawless, not sinless. But if somebody were to take our review of marriage in our homes we would give it a five five star rating based on not only what the Bible says, but our own experience. Before we begin, just a few brief preliminary matters. I said 10 points. I guess this makes 11. I know some of y'all were hoping for 20, but we'll do 10. Okay? let me say a few things before we start about preliminary matters. Number one. We always mess up in marriage when we enter marriage for the wrong reasons. Paul David Tripp, in his book on marriage, he has this book, Marriage, Six Gospel Commitments That Every Married Couple Should Make. He says this is one of the biggest mistakes people make when they enter into marriage. They want the wrong things out of marriage. You don't get married for somebody else to make you whole or to fill out your life or make you all that you can and should be. That's God's job. And if you enter marriage on that basis and with that mindset, you put an unhealthy burden on your spouse. And ask them to do for you what they really can. And that is make you all that you can be. Marriage is great. Marriage involves companionship. But marriage is not your God. Here's number two. The devil hates your marriage. You might say in Genesis chapter three, when the devil entered into the garden, he entered in to destroy the human family, disrupt our relationship with God. And that would be right. But you could also make the case that he came into the garden to destroy marriage because that's the first institution that he attacked with Adam and Eve. He gets Eve separated from Adam, introduces doubts in her mind about what God has said. Not only is the relationship between humanity disrupted as a result, but also the relationship between husband and wife. Number three, as you listen tonight. Listen for your marriage or your potential marriage and nobody else. Don't judge your insides by somebody else's outsides. Don't think about how everybody else is doing marriage and all that. This isn't the sermon about how 10 steps to identical marriages. You're not trying to be like everybody else. We'll preach that another time. 10 steps toward your marriage being all that it could be, but there's another layer. Don't think about your spouse. Everything that God wants you to do in the marriage is within your sphere of influence to do whether or not your spouse cooperates. It's always better when they do. But if they don't, if they fail to do so, as much as is humanly possible, you carry out your responsibility to the best of your ability. And here's the last one. This lesson is for everybody. If you were married before and your spouse has departed or the marriage ended for reasons beyond your control, you know, the Bible still says every Christian is to uphold marriage and honor. Hebrews 13 and verse four. If you're listening to this lesson tonight, you're saying, you know, Hiram, I've been married longer than you've been alive. That's possible. I've seen some of the anniversaries coming up. That's possible. But here's what I want you to know. Your marriage can still be better. I think the devil would have us to coast into autopilot and say, you know, I've been married 20 years. I've got we are how we are. We are how we're going to be. It is. We've been married 50 years. We can't really improve. And God would say, as he would about every area of the Christian life, I've got better things in store than you can imagine. If you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and turn it to Ephesians chapter four. I know we are probably thinking the marriage chapter is Ephesians chapter five, one chapter over where Luke read a moment ago, but we're going to be in Ephesians four. We're going to start in 22 and just work our way down through verse 32. Here's the thing to think about. As you think about marriage from the biblical perspective, you might be surprised to find there really isn't an abundance of passages in the New Testament about marriage. Have you ever thought about that? There aren't a bunch of lists and rules about how to carry out your duties and my duties as Christian spouses. And you know why that's the case. It's the case because what God wants to happen to people that become disciples of Jesus is to take every passage in the Bible about the Christian life and apply it to your relationship. So he doesn't have to say, hey, this is applying to you as a husband. Everything in the Bible that's telling you and me how to live for Jesus Christ is supposed to be filtered into our marriage. Sometimes the New Testament drills down and says specifically this is about your marital relationship. But nothing's off limits in the Christian life. And we read passages about character transformation and the way we're supposed to live. And we sometimes think that applies to every relationship except this one. And what I want to do tonight is just walk through these passages and notice how these passages apply. Yes, to every area of our life, but most especially our marriages. Here's number one. If our marriages would be awesome, we should put away the old man with his lust. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.22. And put off the old man, which is according to your former manner of life, according to the deceitful lust. If you look up in verse 20 and verse 21, Paul told these folks they hadn't learned Christ this way. Don't walk according to the way the Gentiles walk. You haven't learned Christ that way. Put those things off. Put off that old man. When does that happen? When you bury the old person in baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 5, you rise to walk in this newness of life. And Paul's saying, once that old man been put to death make sure that he or she stays there don't bring them up from the grave but this would also apply to our marriages to put off the old person we come into marriages with habits with sort of selfish preconceived ideas we want things to be our way and once we enter into that marital bond we've got to put away the old man and put away that deceitful lust the former manner of life that would hinder our relationship with our spouse We sometimes say I've counseled people in marriage and they say things like, well, listen, you knew this is how I was when you married me. They'll say to their spouse. And that might be true. But listen, God is saying, I want you to change. Second Corinthians three and verse 18. Day by day, we all are supposed to be being changed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It won't do to say, well, I've always been cranky. And I've never been a morning person. and I've always had an attitude about this subject. Put off the former way of life and put on this new person. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. Second Corinthians 517, including you as an individual in the marital relationship. The first thing we've got to do to have an awesome marriage, according to Scripture, would be make sure to put off that old person. And according to the lust. Now, the lust here probably isn't the lust we're thinking about, but that would also be involved. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, where he says, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Mike led us a moment ago in that song, pure in heart, help me to be. It'll bless our marriages if we don't have lust for other individuals that we've got no right to. Job would say in Job 31 and verse one, I've made a covenant with my eyes. By the way, this is a covenant every married person should make. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? I'm going to keep my eyes pure and holy because lust will destroy me. If you think about it, this idea really ruined the first family in the paradise of God and where they stood. Genesis three and verse six says that Eve saw that the tree was good and desired a tree to make one wise. What was that? It was lust and it drove her in the wrong direction. And so it'll be in our marriages if we don't get it under control. Put off the former way of living and put off lust. One more area of lust we should probably put off, and that is trying to make our spouses like we want them to be. Listen, you married a partner, not a project. You can't make a person what you want them to be. You've got to let them be themselves. And people change over time. But it's not our responsibility from the altar to the grave to continue to work on this person and bring them into conformity with our will, our desires to see them behave in a certain way. We've got to let God work on them and put off that former way of thinking. Number two. Change your mind. Ephesians 4 and verse 23, Paul says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans 12 and verse two talks about the Christian changing their mind. Paul says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect way of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible teaches if God gets the mind, he gets the man. Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of life. If you're a married individual tonight, change your mind about marriage. Stop thinking about marriage from the standpoint of 50 50 and start thinking about it from God's standpoint, which is 100 percent and 100 percent. And on some days it might be 100 percent and zero percent. But God never gives you or me as a spouse the opportunity to do less than our best because our spouse is underperforming. And I think sometimes we write ourselves a past. We say, hey, I would be a better husband if she would do this. And I could be a better wife if he would cooperate and do this. But everything God's asking us to do as spouses is not contingent upon their cooperation. I know that's true because there are passages in the New Testament where Christians are married to non-Christians. And Paul says, you still can do your part. First Corinthians 7 and verse 16, Paul says, if you're married to an unbeliever, who knows, wife, whether you'll save your unbelieving husband or husband, whether you're save your unbelieving spouse. Or first Peter, chapter three, verses one through four. Peter says to those wives, even if they won't obey the word, if he won't come to a worship service or attend the gospel meeting, he says he can still be won over by the godly conduct of the wife. While he beholds your chaste behavior, coupled with fear, change your mind about marriage. Tom Mullins says on marriage that a marriage begins when you marry the person you love, but a marriage blossoms when you love the person you marry. Change your mind about how you see your spouse and how you view the marital relationship and let God inform what that really is all about. Our marriages, according to the New Testament, are supposed to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. We're supposed to be heavenly advertisement for what people should expect to see in their relationship to God. And we just have to change the way we approach it. The world says all sorts of things to us about marriage, and we've got to reject it and have our minds renewed by what Scripture says. The world says, hey, if you're not getting what you want, you can leave this marriage and we should just take divorce off the table. The world says, hey, don't accept anything. Fight for your rights. Make sure you always get your end of the deal. And if it's not going fair, slack up in your duties. But the New Testament says "Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Your marriage and my marriage in the end is not about making us happy as individuals. It's about glorifying God, serving him, helping our spouses be all that they can be to the good and glory of God. Our marriages serve to sanctify us and help us be the people God would have us to be. But if we enter from a selfish vantage point, we'll miss out on what God wants to do in us and through us in our marital relationship, change the way you think about marriage. Stop thinking about everything, in every marriage, I can assure you, in every marriage, there's always somebody that needs to change. And if that person changes, the marriage will be better. And every time, it's the person looking you and me in the mirror. If that person changes, things can improve. And by the way, that's the only person in the relationship that you can change. And the only one God holds you and me responsible for changing. Here's number three, be righteous and holy. Ephesians four and verse twenty four, Paul says, I want you to put on the new man, which is renewed after the image of the one that created him in righteousness and true holiness. Some people say righteousness is about our relationship to humanity and holiness is about our relationship to God. It doesn't have to be that way. It can involve both. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew five and verse six. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness because they'll be satisfied. They'll be filled First John two and verse twenty nine says, if we know that he is righteous, we know that everyone that practices righteousness is acceptable with him. What does this have to do with our marriage? It has this to do with it. If you want your marriage to be awesome, the best thing that we can do is pursue righteousness and holiness, meaning draw near to God. The best husband in the world is a faithful Christian. The best wife in the world is a faithful Christian. Draw nearer to God. You find two people drawing close to God, it'll just happen. They'll draw closer to each other. Be studying the Bible, be praying, be worshiping. Draw near to God in righteousness and holiness. Fight against small compromises on a daily basis. Whether that be apathy or rationalizing your behavior and grow deeper in your relationship with God and it'll just happen. You'll grow deep in your relationship to your spouse. In righteousness, in true holiness, decide in your mind you're not going to let wickedness corrupt you. If the researchers I'm reading are right, and the books on this and all of the facts are right, pornography is an epidemic that's destroying people, not just young people, but even marriages. The statistics say two out of four men are overwhelmed with this, and the number for women are rising as well. And we might think, well, I wouldn't have a problem with that, or that's not a problem in our sphere of life. But listen, David says in Psalm 101 in verse 3, I'll set no wicked thing before my eyes. It starts in these small compromising ways, but it will rot out and ruin your marriage. Just make up your mind. I won't make those sort of compromises In righteousness and in true holiness. I'm going to do the best that I can to draw near to God, to draw closer to him so that I can be the spouse that God would have me to be. 1 Peter one, 15 and 16. Peter says, as he which has called you as holy, so you be holy in all your conduct and conversation. For it's written, be holy for I'm holy. Who's the standard in the life of the Christian, even in the Christian marriage? It's God It's to be holy in the same way that he is and reflect that holiness to my spouse and in our marriage relationship. Here's number four. Tell the truth. I guess this is simple enough. In Ephesians 4 25, Paul quotes from Zechariah 8 in verse 16, where he says, Don't lie to one another. Every man speak the truth with his neighbor because we're members one of another. That's true about the Christians in general. Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus and he's saying, hey, don't lie to each other. And then what's his rationale? Look at verse 25. Because we're members one of another. That would make sense. Don't lie to me, and I shouldn't lie to you, because we're on the same team. The devil is the father of lies. And every time we lie, you can hear the hiss from the garden spear up in our mouths as we reflect that which we shouldn't. But in a deeper sense, spouses are members one of another in a way that other people are not. And we need to speak the truth one with another. There was an article in the Communication Quarterly, which says spouses typically lie to each other about three times a week. That's pretty bizarre. Three times a week, spouses lie to each other. There was research done with Duke, Connecticut and Indiana University, and they found out that 90 percent of spouses that they surveyed said that they lied to each other about purchases that they made. I don't know where this Amazon stuff came from. They're like Aaron with the, the golden calf out just came this stuff from Amazon. They're calling it consumer dishonesty. And in the article, they say, hey, this kind of line is OK. Just don't let it bleed over into other parts of your relationship. You can imagine the problem with that. You can imagine how it's going to be impossible to stop this lying over time and how dishonesty can ruin a marriage. It starts with small things. What did you do for the day? Who did you talk to? How was the day? And then it balloons into big things. You know why we lie just in general, but especially in our marriages. We lie, number one, because we think we're protecting the other person, but we're really protecting ourselves. We lie because we say, well, they couldn't handle this. The reality is we can't handle it. We can't handle the truth, and because of that, we, we kind of coerce ourselves into thinking, hey, I'm really doing it for their benefit. But we also lie, number two, because we rather look better than we truly are. Circumstances aren't what we would have them to be, and because that's the case, we're dishonest. Or number three, and probably most fatally, we lie because we say, this person, we don't want, they're not worthy of knowing the truth. They don't need to know this. I'll fix things, and then they'll know the truth later. And we wreck and ruin our relationships. You want to have an awesome marriage? Tell the truth. About what? About everything. Always be a person that says, I value you enough to tell you the truth. It may be difficult. You may not like what you're about to hear, but I'm going to be honest with you. Always tell the truth. You know why? Because if you tell the truth, people can work on what's broken if they know that it's broken. But so long as people don't have any idea that this issue is cropping up in the relationship, there's nothing that can be done to fix it. Think about how you felt when you've been lied to when people have misled you and think about your spouse in that regard and resolve to never put them in that situation. And ultimately, just love the truth. Proverbs 23 and verse 23 Buy the truth and refuse to sell it. Be open and be honest. Never do anything in the absence of your spouse that you won't feel comfortable speaking up about in the presence of your spouse. Always tell the truth. Be able to be like David. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to be a person that tells the truth. You want everybody to tell you the truth. You want your doctor to tell you the truth. It's a long shot, but you want your politicians to tell you the truth. You want everybody in the world to tell you the truth. But guess what? Especially your spouse. Nothing destroys a marriage like dishonesty. Nothing upends a marriage like an individual that says, well, yeah, I lied about this one thing, but I'm telling you, I'm telling the truth. Now, once you start down that track, it's nearly impossible to retrieve that trust again. You want an awesome marriage. Tell the truth. Number next, I've lost count. We're depending on Kelly now. Okay. control your anger. Ephesians 426. Paul says, be angry and don't sin and don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Control your anger. I know people get to points like this. And the first thing somebody responds with is Jesus got angry and he did. He went into the temple. He flipped the tables of the money changers. Mark three and verse five says Jesus looked around on the multitudes with anger. You could imagine his anger in Matthew 23 as he rebukes the Pharisees. There were occasions in Jesus' life when he got angry, but we should all pause and consider you're not Jesus and neither am I. It's not to say there's never anything to be angry about. There are times when we should and woe to the man or woman who can never be angry. But few of us get angry and say, you know what? I'm so angry I could go out and do the will of God. Most times our anger causes us to do things in the opposite direction of God's will and in the marriage, if it would be awesome. Control your anger. Turn your Bible to James chapter one. Hold your hand in Ephesians four and go to James one and notice verse 19 and verse 20. James one and verse 19 is about our response, really, to the word of God that he mentions in 18. But he says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak and slow to get angry. Why is that the case? Notice verse 20 for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That means when you get angry, you do not start thinking about how can I do the will of God in your marriage control? I know it's difficult because we get upset. We have these disagreements and we're going back and forth and we're so passionate about what we're discussing. But it can ruin our marriage if we don't learn how to control it. And so how do we do this? Here are a few practical things. Make sure to calm down first. You're going to talk about something that's heated in the marriage, something that you all are having a big disagreement about. Calm down first. Proverbs 16 and verse 32 says he that controls his spirit is better than the mighty and he that refrains himself than he that takes the city. Don't talk about this in the heat of the moment if you can't control your emotions. But number two, treat them res- with respect, even when you're angry. This is true about everybody, Christ- married or unmarried. You are still held responsible for, by God for your reactions, even when you get upset. God didn't give you a pass. because Well, you were mad that day and I completely understand. No, the golden rule still applies even when we're angry. Matthew 7 and verse 12 says, as you would that men would do to you, do even so to them, for it's the law and the prophets. Don't bring up the past. I like the NIV in 1 Corinthians 13 five. It says love does not keep a record of right and wrongs. When you get angry, you just start pulling up all the receipts. And you did this last time and you always and you're just like your parent. You probably don't want to do that. Don't go digging up the past. It's not going to be good. Love keeps no record of right and wrong. 1 Corinthians 13 five. Don't keep a ledger. Even when you're angry, don't dip into the deposit box of wrongs from the past. Move beyond that and then always give grace. It takes people a long time to change. Change is a process and normally not an event. And in our marriages, we want people to change. We want our spouse to change for the better. And when we're upset with them, we wish that they'd stop doing the thing that we continue to tell them to do but we need to make sure that we give grace. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Be patient toward all men, and that includes your spouse. Paul says, Be angry and don't let anger cause you to sin. Don't let the sun go down on your raft. What does that mean? It means make sure that you work through things and don't allow it to continue on until the next day. Typically, in a marriage, there are two types of personalities. There's one person that when issues come, they want to run. They don't want to talk about it. Let's just time will solve the issue. And there's another person that's chasing this person around the house. Let's talk about it right now. Hey, let's work this thing out right this second. There's got to be a balance between those two. We need to give space for others to calm down, but we don't need to let the sun go down on our wrath and imagine that the next day will just simply solve itself. We've got to work through it, but don't be mastered by anger. Here's the next one. Don't give a foothold to the devil. Ephesians 4:27. Paul says, neither give place to the devil. One Greek dictionary says this means don't give the devil a position to exert his influence in your life. Don't give him a launching pad. You want an awesome marriage? Realize that the devil hates our marriages and he would do anything within his power to ruin them. Don't give him a foothold. How does he do that? Probably up in verse 26 where that anger festers and it's uncontrolled. But in any way that we give the devil an opportunity, he'll use it as a launching pad. Don't give place to the devil. First Peter five in verse eight says, be sober, Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom you resist steadfast in your faith. The devil tries all sorts of ways to get into our marriages. And we've got to be wise enough to say we won't even give you an entrance. We won't give you a foothold. What are some of the ways we sometimes do this? This is a long list. Number one, time apart. David Murray, in his book Reset, he's talking about patterns in your life and he has this question and you have to answer it for yourself. I've got to answer it for me. But Murray says, listen, if somebody were to say to you that you could have a job, a ministry or career, but it would ultimately cost you your marriage and your family, would you take it? And he says right after that, that most people would say absolutely not. But would people looking at your schedule believe your answer? Time apart. I know sometimes it has to be the case, but that must be the exception and not the rule. When did the devil enter in and tempt Adam and Eve or tempt Eve? It seems based on the context, she was away from Adam and then Adam comes on the scene. Sometimes it happens. The devil gets a foothold from repeated times apart. And over time, what can happen in a marriage is you've just basically got two roommates coexisting together. I went to a lecture at Fried Hardeman a few years ago, and this counselor was talking to preachers about marriage and about families. And he said, you know what can sometimes happen in a marriage? Both of the spouses become roommates. And what typically happens? This is a generalization and a stereotype. But he says, what can generally happen is the woman, she throws herself into the home, the children and the cosmetics. And the man throws himself into his career. And that's where he finds his identity. And before long, you just basically have got two roommates living together. And they're not together like god would have them sometimes it's time apart sometimes it's constant arguing i mean about little things maybe you've seen couples like this before they're telling a story and john says you remember that time we went to bev's house and we were driving down the road and we made a right and she says no we made a left he says all right we made a left and we made a left and we got to their house at six o'clock no it wasn't six it was seven and over and over and the constant arguing and the constant bickering the devil gets a foothold. on It seems innocent. It's, well, everybody does it. We're not trying to be like everybody. Ten steps toward an awesome marriage, not an identical one. Don't argue and fight about every little thing. Be willing to lose an argument and let some things go for the sake of your marriage. Pulling us away from the Lord. Sometimes the spouses are on great terms together, but not on good terms with the Lord. So far as they're concerned, their marriage couldn't be better. They love one another. But listen, the greatest command is not to love your spouse with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. It's to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. And so even a a marriage where the couple would say we're doing great together, but not doing great with the Lord. The devil's gained a foothold. We take trips and we travel and we like We got the same hobbies, but we don't love the same Lord. The devil gets a foothold. And you can read the rest of the list, sin and blame and neglect and prayerlessness and on and on the list goes. The devil just wants a foothold. He wants us to go to sleep at the wheel to put our marriages on autopilot and he'll work his way in and gain a foothold and try to ruin our relationships together. Here's the next one. Provide what your spouse needs. Ephesians 428, Paul says, let the one that stole no longer steal, but let him labor, work with his hands, providing that which is needful that he might have to give to the person in need. Paul is saying for Christians, it's a right thing to do to work and labor and then provide for other people that need. But in our lesson tonight on marriage, we should do this for our spouses. We should be there for them and provide what they need. In first Corinthians seven and verse four, Paul says, once you get married, you no longer belong to yourself. He says the husband's body isn't his and the wife's body isn't hers. You belong one toward another and we should provide what our spouses need. Chapman and others have talked about the five love languages and maybe these aren't foreign to you, but these five love languages, here's what they mean. And you can go online and take the test. By the way, over time, this changes. So somebody says, well, I know my love language. It was this 20 years ago. Over time, it changes. And what the love languages mean is just basically in these five categories, one of these or maybe two of them speak to the heart of your spouse, perhaps more than the others. And so they're words of affirmation. Typically, men are said to have this as their primary love language. There's quality time. Receiving gifts, acts of service and physical touch. All of them have biblical backing. All of them are rooted in scripture. But here's what we sometimes make the mistake of doing. We take our love language and we apply it to our spouse. Well, hey, I like words of affirmation. I'll just load her down with words of affirmation. And what she really wants is quality time. Mistake number two, though, is to say, oh, I've got my, my spouse's love language down. He likes this. And so I don't have to do this. Hey, she said her love language was quality time. I'm not getting her anything for Valentine's Day. Don't do that. <laughs> Listen, everybody in the world needs all five of these. Maybe one of them speaks to the human heart more than the others, but we need all five. Words of affirmation, a word fitly spoken, is like apples of gold and pictures of silver, Proverbs 25, 11. Quality time, Song of Solomon, chapter 7, and verse 11. The woman says to the man, let us run to the field together. If you read that book, they love to be in one another's company, receiving gifts. It's more blessed to give than to receive. In some people's love language, it's not about the monetary benefit, but just to know that they've been seen, that they've been appreciated. It makes all the difference. Acts of service. And then, of course, physical touch. You know, Isaac couldn't get away with this one. In Genesis 26, he told Abimelech that Rebekah was his sister. You remember that? Genesis 26, 8 through 9, the Bible doesn't say altogether what was going on. But he looked out there, and because of their closeness, he said, that just couldn't be his sister. They're closer. There ought to be something in our interaction that people know, you know what? Those two folks there, they're not brother and sister. They love one another. But it's deeper than that. Do you know what your spouse needs? Do you ever sacrifice for their behalf? Do you ever watch something that they want to watch? Do you ever go somewhere they want to go? Do you ever try something that they want to try? That's outside of your interest or influence or things that you enjoy. If you would have an awesome marriage, provide what your spouse needs. Don't think about your needs. Think about theirs. And as you continue to serve them, it'll just happen. Typically, it comes back the other way. Here's the next one. Speak wisely about your spouse and to your spouse. Ephesians 4.29. Maybe you've heard the story about the man his wife got the new cosmetics. She tried them on and she said, how old do these things make me look? He said, skin tone of 20. He said, facial features 18, figure about 25. And she praised him. And he said, wait, honey, I haven't added them all up yet. That was not wise. Ephesians 4.29. Paul says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good, that it might administer grace toward the hearers. Speak wisely to and about your spouse. Our culture is not always the best about this, and we might find ourselves joining in, but we need to be wise and do things in a way that God would have Christians to do it. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Do you lash out in anger at your wife? Is she afraid to really speak her mind? Because, hey, you might say something kind of shy. I mean, you never physically hurt, but I mean, your tongue's pretty sharp and everybody in the family knows, especially your wife. When you get upset, hey, it's your way or no way. And everybody just kind of has to walk around on eggshells. It's not going to be a good thing to the wives. Do you have a Ph.D. in nagology? I mean, do you just nag them and that? I'm just going to get them to do what I want. The Bible actually says, if that's you, Proverbs 19 and verse 13, Proverbs 21, 13 Your husband would rather sleep on a rooftop than come in because he knows when he he can never do anything right. Nothing's ever good enough. He never gets all of the things done on the honey do list. Speak openly and wisely to your spouse. Never accept an invitation to a husband bashing party. Everybody else might talk about how clueless and senseless their husbands are. Not you. Everybody else might talk about how their wives are shopaholics and senseless, but not you. That can't be us. We've got to be different. Because God wants us to. And I realize it's OK to joke. I love to joke as much as the next person. But much truth is said in jest. And we sometimes can say things that cut and that hurt. And that may be difficult to return from. And so Ephesians 4:29 says, let no corrupt. What is the word for corrupt here? It's a word that means rotten, that which is negative, that which will ultimately destroy with our words. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good, that it might administer grace to those that hear it. Let us be those that brag on our spouses. It might make other people sick, but it'll make your marriage strong. People will know you for loving your spouse and they'll know they won't be able to cut down your spouse in your presence. It'll affair proof your marriage. Nobody will be able to make their way in because there won't be any mistake about, hey, what these two people have in common in their bond. Here's number nine. Think about eternity together. Ephesians four and verse 30. Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed for the day of redemption Put away all clamor, wrath, anger and evil speaking. He talks about all those things. I just want to focus in on verse 30 where he says that we are those that are going to put away. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed for the day of redemption. And I just want you to think about your marriage. I realize that the Bible says there won't be any marriage in heaven. That's true. But how we conduct ourselves in this marriage may have a lot to say about whether or not we ever make it there. Peter says in first Peter three and verse seven, husbands and wives are heirs together of the grace of life. Think about eternity together. The Christian life is difficult enough. Make it easier for your spouse to serve Jesus. Do you know right now the things that your spouse is struggling with and about the things that you should be praying for them? Things personally, their struggles, their insecurities, their personal temptations. Do you know those things and are you praying toward that end? How's their devotional life going in most marriages? There will probably be somebody that may be further along in their spiritual journey. Don't leave your spouse in your theological dust. Help her to read the Bible. Help him to study. Give him the opportunity to lead. Don't say, well, he's never going to do the prayers. He'll never do the nighttime. Whatever the case may be. Give him the opportunity. Let him lead. Be patient. Be long suffering. Think about eternity. One of you might say on a Sunday night, you know, I really don't feel like going back. You always be the spouse to say, you know, we should. I know that, hey, there's a gospel meeting. Hey, there's going to be an opportunity for us to go to a marriage seminar and grow together. Think about the day of redemption together and help your spouse get to heaven. And on the days when you don't feel like giving it your all and you won't always pray to God, that they'll help you do the very same thing. Here's the last one. Ephesians 432. Practice the golden rule in your marriage. Paul says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. If any man has a complaint against any, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Tim Keller in his book on forgiveness says that in the end, forgiveness is really not about letting go. It's about holding on. Forgiveness says I'm willing to let these things go so that I can hold on to this relationship and to you as an individual, as a person. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Of course, this applies to our relationships in general, but especially our marriages. Nobody has an awesome marriage without forgiveness. There will be issues. There will be failings. You will say and do things you just never thought that you could. And what's going to help you to get through that? Forgiveness. Being able to say, you know what, I charge that to your head and not your heart. Letting that go, getting over that and trying to move forward together forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. This is what God wants every husband and wife to do. He wants you to look at your spouse, and he wants you to treat them right now, today, as if he or she were everything they already could be. You know all of the weaknesses. You know all the faults. You know all of the failings. God's saying, you know what? I want you to put all that aside. Do for him everything you I know you you you're holding back. I'm holding back. And we think, well, I could do better. I know. But this person isn't really worthy of my 100 percent. And what God's saying to us is, listen, I want you to treat them as if they're already everything they could be. And then to the other one, I want you to do the very same thing, because after all, that's what God's done for us. If God waited for us to get our act together, nobody would be saved. Romans five, six through eight. And so he's saying you don't wait for people to be on their best behavior for you to be on yours. You just love them anyway and practice the golden rule. There's a lot we could say about Adam and Eve, but here's the one thing you can't say, that they quit on their marriage. They didn't quit. Genesis 3, they ruined the world together. Genesis 4, Adam knew his wife Eve, she conceived and bore a son named Cain. They stuck it out, they stuck together, and that's what God wants us to do, but he wants us to do something a little bit more than just stick it out, to just eek across the finish line together. He wants us, as much as we can within us, to have an awesome marriage to the good and glory of God. We should be saying to ourselves, if our marriages are supposed to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Husbands, if Christ loved the church like you loved your wife, would anybody ever be saved or even have the hope that they could? And wives, if the church submitted to Christ like you submit to your husband, would Jesus be pleased with any congregation that bears his name? Ephesians 5, and 25, that is the standard for us. And it's not an impossible one, but it's one that we need to continue to strive towards. The Bible uses marriage as the relationship that we enjoy with Jesus Christ. And maybe tonight somebody needs to enter that marriage with him, believing that Jesus is Christ, turning from sin and being immersed just like Samantha was this afternoon. We love to witness it. We love to study with you and help you. Tonight, if you are married, we've got some on the verge of being married. I just want to challenge us all to do the best that we can to make our marriage awesome. I'm not speaking to you as an expert tonight, really, as a failure in a lot of areas, but to say we can do better. It can be enhanced. And if your marriage is already awesome, God would encourage you to put icing on top of it and make it even better. Mike's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If we can pray for you, pray for your marriage, let us know how we can help you. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.